This is Abrupt Future, the podcast that explores the digital, distributed, and disruptive workplace with your host, Benoit Hardy-Vallet. Alex Temkin, you are a PhD student in computer science at Stanford University. Behind that chat GP3, we understand that there's a GP3 model, and this is part of a large language model or pre-trained foundation model. So I feel like there's a couple of technical concepts to unpack. Tell us a little bit about that and how it's different from the more traditional machine learning models. Traditionally in machine learning, you um, often will have a machine learning model that's trained for one specific task. So when I mean trained, I say, say you want to classify emails as spam or not spam. Uh, you'll collect you know, thousands or maybe even millions of emails, and these will be the inputs that you'll give to the model. And then you'll collect all of the judgments, whether it's spam or not spam. And this can work quite well. And I would say for the last few years, it's really everything that was sold as AI and machine learning was some kind of classifier or matcher. In my field, for example, I, I've seen a lot of systems that do CV matching, right? So you mm. have a profile, you're being matched to a certain job description, there's a probability of the match, or say a future role within an organization. So it was always about matching, but it sounds like now we're, we just had, I don't want to say a quantum leap, but we're we're moving into something else. This is what you might call a discriminative AI, where it's all about judgment. It's about scoring things, or it's about classifying things, or, or matching things. It's also, you know, these models that are trained for one particular thing. So matching, uh, just matching resumes, or just classifying things as spam or not, you know, toxic text or not toxic. And what we're seeing now is the emergence of this, uh, you know, much more general or open-ended set AI technologies. And you know, these have gone by the names of, you know, pre-trained models or foundation models. And what happens is they, a lot of these traditional machine learning models start from scratch. So they're trained first thing. And the only thing they're exposed to is emails. So the first and only thing they're exposed to is resumes. But what these models now are being exposed to is much broader. They start by being exposed to, you know, all of the text on the web or all of the images that can be scraped or all of the antibodies in a huge uh, database or all of the DNA sequences in a huge corpus that have been extracted already. And what this does is it gives the the models a, a base of knowledge. Knowledge is maybe a little bit of creative interpretation, but it gives it a, a base or a foundation, uh, which is where foundation models comes from, which helps it learn new things a lot faster. And you know, that might seem like very simple, right? Like obviously when we learn new tasks, we start from a base of, of knowledge about them, how to do a, a new task on my browser, right? I've done a bunch of other things on my browser before. I've worked with computers before. I've worked with other types of technology. But I think the, um, the realization of this recently has been very exciting to see and led to a lot of different kinds of ways that you can interact with these machine learning models. That you so rather than just matching, you know, a resume to another resume, what you can do now is you can ask models to do lots of different things in, in everyday language, right? So you can put in a piece of text from a website and you can say, summarize this in the style of Shakespeare, or tell me about the key strategic initiatives in the second sentence, or rewrite this, but as if, as if it were for a five-year-old child. And that sort of level of open-endedness, that level of interactivity, 
And that level of being able to generate as opposed to just output a, a, a single judgment is, I think, what's really separating this era of foundation models from previous areas. Is it because the system were fed more data or have we developed new types of algorithms or, or new new way of processing information. I mean, it sounds like we went from matching things, which was pretty good, to suddenly from just a tiny input, right? You have a system like ChatGPT, and I'm sure a lot of parents like me have done that, right? You ask, write me a story about this and that one line, and then suddenly you can have something in the style of Dr. Seuss, and it's rhyming. It have a start, a middle, an end, and a little morale at the end. And you're thinking, how on earth suddenly did we just generate all that insight and creating recipe? And I mean, the list is, is so long. But this ability to create something that, okay, is not a produce of pure intelligence and consciousness and all that, but it has the feeling of being written by an intelligent, right? And, and it triggers our recognition of, of intelligence. So where does that leap happen? I think one thing that's really is striking is the creative impact of when you read a lot of that, but feel very, very creative and, and, and lifelike in different ways. And yet you see it being you know, generated in a split second before um, your eyes. Now, we'll unpack, I guess, some of the uh, issues with that a little bit later in, in our, our chat today. But I think it boils down to a couple of different things. It boils down to scale, which is that the neural networks that we're using are much bigger than before. The amount of data they're receiving is much bigger than before. And the amount of compute that is being used to pour that data into the uh, big cistern of the model, if, if you will, is a lot greater than before. And basically, if you think about the world as being a complex but finite thing that exists, then you might expect to need a lot of uh, parameters, a lot of free variables in order to model the, the, the reality of all of the different ways that people can use the word because and all of the different connotations that an apple has in literature and all of the different grammatical nuances of the different ways that people speak across the world. So I think the ability to go from machine learning models that are uh, a lot smaller to a lot larger is in part responsible for the ability of these models to capture a lot of what looks like the uh, effortlessness of, of language. That they, um, but it's not just scale. I think there's the algorithms that people have developed that enable uh, uh, these machines to be used in the ways that they are. If you were to just type in to the original GPT-3 model, write me a sonnet in, in the style of Shakespeare, you might not get out a sonnet. You might say, write me a, it might just output other commands like that. So it might say, write me a book in the style of Faulkner, write me a, a list in the style of, you know, some other artist. It doesn't actually capture your intent as well as these models do. And that's because these models have been trained with an additional set of training instructions or directions, which are going from human uh, commands to, to those outputs. And there's a lot of human labor behind that. A lot of times when you use a model like ChatGPT, you are contributing to your data is being used to basically train the next version and have it follow your instructions better. So it's not just the scale, it's also these recent forms of using human feedback that help the models uh, behave better. 
Is it a similar scale and techniques behind the other modalities in which generative AI has been applied? People who start playing with ChatGPT, next thing they do, they start playing with Midjourney or other generative AI. And again, you have the stunning visual where you paint me a, an idea of the future of work as represented by Salvatore Dali. And it created the whole thing and you could swear it was a Salvatore Dali painting, right? And again, it has so many other example. So is it the same logic? You have, you know, you're basically interacting with a system that have seen every visual that humanity every, ever produced, and then is using that as inspiration to generate things on the fly. Yeah, I would say that a lot of the same principles are there, that these models are a lot bigger than they were before. They've been trained on a much, uh, not just more data, but broader data. So rather than just being trained on images, they're trained on illustrations, they're being trained on paintings, they're being trained on all of these other sorts of things. Now, the precise form that the neural networks take in these algorithms and the precise ways they've been trained are different. And I think there's been less uh, use of this human feedback principle in text to image models than in language models. But, you know, in broad strokes, a lot of the same. And now, I mean, of, of course, it has been a lot of fun asking ChatGPT, inventing stories in the style of an author and then generating visuals. But beyond, you know, the, the assisted uh, writing, what other type of real world problems can we solve with these models? Because obviously we haven't just that to create some funny Twitter post. <laughs> I think there's a, a bigger picture here. And I recall seeing some research, I think, on protein structure. So I, I think you study other use cases behind the, the fun stuff that can be done with uh, generative AI. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh? I would say that a lot of the sort of most exciting and most realized applications are in language, but a lot of the things that people are working on goes much far beyond language. People often hear the word foundation model and they think, oh, this just refers to language models. But actually a lot of these same principles can be applied to coding and you know software engineering to design, to software automation, to administrative workflows, to astronomy, genomics, proteins, even helping with just everyday tasks and research. So for example, you can propose new uh, organic molecules for drug design, new antibodies for therapeutics. You can write code and tests, you know, review code, or try to find bugs with these models. You could try to propose new types of materials for material science. All of these are applications that people are working on. The reliability of, of these models needs to be a lot higher, the higher the stakes are. And I think that's a really core challenge that these models are facing. But this is the sort of scope of the these models that people are trying to uh, apply them to. Potentially, it could be a, I don't want to say a revolution, but certainly something that can change a, a lot of field because every place where you have complexity and you have a, a certain amount of data that you can learn from, then you can generate solution. So beyond the chatbot use case, again, you were talking, for example, administrative workflows, right? You can imagine a system that has access to all the processes within an organization who can proactively detect some gap in your supply chain, alert somebody, and then generate a whole plan to fix the gap, right? I mean, use cases are, are endless. H how do you see organization and industry starting to, to play or to use those those models. This connects a little bit to that point I was raising about reliability, which is that while these are things that people are trying, that they're researching, it's not really quite clear uh, always whether the reliability will be high enough, especially for some of the more ambitious use cases. And so that's why it's still in R&D and you really haven't quite seen it deployed or reaching um, such a large scale. And I think it's kind of unclear what the, the timescales will be, whether it'll be a few years or, or, or a few 
decades um, or never for some of these applications. But I think what organizations are going to have to do is, you know, respond to the risks of the technologies, you know, reputational risks, risks to, you know, their employees or to the people that they, um, their customers, um, and to the promises. That they, and uh, really uh, think about it carefully for their own use cases. So for a few of these models, maybe it's a perfect fit and it works exactly as a substitute for an existing tool that they have just a lot better and in an existing. Um, other times it could be used to make, you know, uh, tasks that they're currently doing faster, right? Like coding autocomplete, um, you know, writing assist like that. Other times they'll need to, you know, come up with completely new workflows, right? Maybe, uh, you know, the access to very cheap review of, uh, you know, a particular uh, widget that they're making uh, will totally change the game in terms of like, okay, now we can put all these steps first and now we can shift more of our resources verification or more of our resources into, you know, uh, every time you have a, a bottleneck and that bottleneck changes, uh, it totally can lead to a different a different workflow for a company. Um, I think it also depends on whether models, you know, companies will be building their own machine learning models. So they'll be using existing models via API, right? Um, APIs are a lot easier to get up and running. They can just, uh, you don't have to have all these big computers that you train the model on or the engineering expertise. Uh, at the same time, if you want to have full control, if you want to ensure that no one, you know, is looking at user data or you want to make sure that, uh, you know, you, you, the rug can't get pulled out from under you, uh, then maybe you want to train your own model. So I think it really, the, the, the space of the ways that these can be integrated into work is almost as vast as the applications themselves. One application I was curious to ask you was for uh, software development. Um, I'm, I'm less familiar with the universe of coding, although I did the HTML in the 90s. Um, but for, from what I've seen in, in a lot of use case, I, I, I saw a lot of programmers and developers saying, look, you know, it's it solved a problem in my code. It generated the code. Could it be that rapidly the role of the software developer would evolve with, with these kinds of tools? Yeah, it's amazing the number of screenshots I've seen where someone has said, uh, look, I've just plugged this t task into ChatGPT and, and it did it for me in a second. And the fraction of those were, if you actually look carefully, it's wrong. Um, <laughs> and yet they still posted it, right? Because they were, they were so excited. Yeah. Uh, I think that that is revealing as to state of things right now. But over time, that'll shift. People, as people were quite good at trying things out and figuring out how to make tool for us. Um, it's not always a perfect process, but... Uh, I think for a lot of, you know, software engineering tasks that are simple, that are completing a line of code, completing a small function, these tools are working quite well and delivering some value. Now, it's always a trade-off, right? Because they do make some some bugs, and sometimes those bugs are hard to find, right? Sometimes they introduce security vulnerabilities. But I think that there's, uh, it'll be a constant push and pull. And as the tools get better, the, the rate of those failures will go down. We'll have ways of detecting a lot of these uh, bugs that have been introduced by these models. And I think we'll adapt and learn to find value from them. But it might be a little bit of a bumpy road. But I do think really that, you know, if you have AI that is involved in generating code, uh, identifying bugs and reviewing the code, you know, in helping people read and understand documentation, then uh, it might be uh, quite hard for uh 
people who code to go back to a world where they don't have all of those. You know, I'm not surprised to learn that actually some of the code is wrong. I mean, given the, the current set of the technology, right? Because it doesn't have access to real world data. And it's it's a system that, that looks pretty confident, even when it says something that is wrong, right? But like, if you ask for scientific references on any topic, sometimes it gives you a full URL, a description, the name, the author, and, and then you look for these references and they don't exist, but it just makes it look like it, it's absolutely capture something about the essence of what it takes to look true and legit, although it's not there. So it shows the, the potential. I guess it also highlights the challenges once these system becomes so smart, we might develop the reflex of taking everything they generate at, at face value. Do you have any view as to how organization can, can navigate that complexity? Because soon we could be relying on these systems as an artificial uh, legs or, or, or brain, right, uh, uh, that support our work. So how do we make sure that we're not growing something that, that's going uh, in the wrong direction? Yeah, so I think it really depends on the use case and where the tool is situated within the organization. So you can think of uh, like a little two by two grid, right? Where on the X axis is, you know, is this a high stakes application or is this a low stakes application? And on the Y axis is maybe, you know, is this a tool where you can, a human reviews the output or where there's no human review, right? And for high stakes applications where the human is not reviewing the decision, uh, I think that's sort of like a, you know, a red light at the moment where, you know, I don't think we can be very confident in many uh, AIs that can, you know, behave, behave uh, well, certainly not ones that, you know, organizations who are not skilled in, in the art of like building and assessing these can, can deal with. Now, in the other corners, you know, high stakes, uh, but humans get review and low stakes, but humans, uh, you know, don't have review. I think those are more yellow light, you know, applications where, you know, even if a human can review a high stakes decision, we have this thing called automation bias where, you know, if a, if a machine is very confident and tells us to suggest something and all the other things it suggested, you know, recently have been pretty good, then we might put more trust in it than is really warranted. Now, over time, I think, as we get accustomed to these technologies, I think we'll come to more of an equilibrium with the amount of trust that we place in them. And, you know, uh, we'll be, we won't be as uh, credulous as we were at the very start. But, um, you know, I think really the, the most promising applications right now are at that uh, green light where, you know, it's low stakes, you know, humans have review, it's creative, it's generative, um, you know, it's providing suggestions, providing options and the human is sort of taking those and integrating those into the work product. But over time, as the models get more reliable, you might start to see spreading out into those other quadrants. Yeah. And we'll see also how individual organization will uh, will adapt or or adopt it, right? Right now, the, the biggest use case is what we see online with the free tool freely available. And, and depending which forums, you know, I've, I've been looking at the Reddit, Discord, Facebook, and, and LinkedIn, I, I would say that most of the time it's it's an aid to rewrite thing, to summarize or to to write, but with a human input. And then you see that there's a dialectics between the, the human and the AI. Generate an idea, it gives you an output that you feed back to the system. And then at the end, you have a, a product that is really a, a hybrid, right? It's not like 
I mean, yes, you, you could just give a small prompt and then suddenly it generate a whole story, but typically it's not good enough. It, it needs a, a refinement. So just like there's some research, I, th I think that showed that people who play chess with computer and who learn how to play chess with computer develop a stronger capability, having both together. It sounds like there it, it, it could be a near future where people who learn how to work productively with these systems would have a an edge, right? I don't want to say that it will transform the workforce or that job will disappear. It sounds like we're witnessing the emergence of a new skill, how to play with generative system. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you've ever looked at any of these Twitter accounts or other accounts online that show artists who are showing off their, their AI art, everyone thinks, oh, you know, you just push a button and out come these amazing pieces. But if you actually look at the creative process, right, it's a little bit like photography, right? Oh, they just pressed a button and it came out fine, right? But if you've ever, you know, been with a camera, you know, you, you're constantly reframing, you're stepping forward, you're adjusting the composition. Um, and it's much the same with uh, text-to-image models, right? Like like Midjourney or Stable Diffusion or Dali. Um, and I think it's, you know, quite similar also with uh, uh, coding assistants like Copilot and probably many of these other generators. You have to learn to, uh, you know, play them like an instrument, right? And like... Any other instrument, whether it's a musical instrument or whether it's a, a keyboard or whether it's um, other tools that you use, um, you're never going to, you know, play it well uh, just at the first try, right? It's a constant process of figuring out what are the things that I can do with this that I couldn't do before? When does it fail me? When doesn't it? When can it push me, you know, uh, to uh, uh, new horizons? And when should I leave it behind in the dust and just continue on like I was previously? So I, I totally agree. So it sounds like there's two two skills or, or two human component that would be important. One, how to use the system productively, but also I think the knowledge or the expertise of the field in which you operate. Because again, to come back to the example of the visual cues, now you can have uh, with Midjourney and other, you can generate pictures that, that looks like a true photography. But if you don't understand the different type of filter, the aperture, right, all of that photographic language, it's really hard to have an informed conversation, quote unquote, with the system. So again, it, this is me thinking out loud, but I think if we can focus our expertise more on the specific field, right, the foundational knowledge of a field, then we can leave the execution to some of these systems, but we should still own knowledge of the field. Yeah, in some sense, taste has never been more important, right? Because once you get the output, then you need to say, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. But this is this is where your taste, also your, in the, in the case of photography, your visual culture, right? And even in the case of literary output, if you're a terrible marketer, you won't recognize good copy. And also a lot of these different applications are in some sense um, competitive or in some sense sensitive to the other agents who are interacting here, right? So... The first person who creates an AI-generated tool with, uh, you know, Midjourney or some other tool just by typing in beautiful landscape, it's like, oh, that's amazing. It's beautiful, right? But by the 10 millionth, you know, beautiful landscape or even really the, 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 the 10th beautiful landscape, you know, it's really who's pushing the boundary, right? If everyone has the tool, then it's the people who use the tool best who distinguish themselves from the other people. So uh, I think for... AI art, especially, it's uh, always going to be a constant cycle of, you know, what's new, what's, uh, th then what gets stale, right? And then who's going to bring that new freshness in? And I think that holds true for a lot of different applications.
as long as you have enough data, you can generate or create an output out of that. If you're if you're in a field where the absolute standard is the thing that's important, right? Or you can grade something objectively on zero to 100, then maybe all of those numbers will go up and everyone will be a lot happier. But if you're in a field where you're distinguished between uh, who's the better writer, you know, or who's the more creative artist, or who's the, you know, fastest at X, Y, or Z, then it all depends on who, who can use the tool better to, to achieve that, that goal. AI and ethics is a vast topic in itself, but looking specifically at generative model, are there any steps or uh, things we should be thinking to make sure that the organization that we are part in or ourselves, if we are a decision maker, make sure that we make a ethical use of these models? I mean, there's so much to, to say here, right? And the whole, whole field uh, focusing. I think I'd say a couple of things. One is, you know, start by making sure that the AI is actually really needed in the application that, you know, you're working on, right? So a good test for this is, uh, would you use still use the AI if it didn't have AI in the name and no one would know that you, that you were using it, right? You wouldn't say this is AI powered or, or ML powered, right? Um, actually going down to the actual details of what the machine is doing and what the value is. Um, another aspect is disclosure, right? Uh, I think that people should know when they're interacting with an AI tool, whether that's a customer support bot, whether that's a, you know, uh, anything really, I think that, um, you know, I don't like f the idea of fooling people by uh, pretending to put, in, put off an AI as a human. I think that's wrong. Um, there's also, you know, safety testing and practices, um, especially for risky applications, but really everything that these, uh, these tools need a different set of safety, you know, um, safety checks, right? And robustness checks. And we're just sort of now starting to figure out how to do that well. But I think that, you know, you can't just like plug in your, the AI to an important workflow and just let it go, right? You really need to, to be careful there. Um, the other thing is fairness and differential impact. Um, these AIs have uh, a whole host of flaws. You know, humans have flaws too, but the, it sort of manif doesn't always manifest in uh, in quite the same way. And sometimes the, the AIs have uh, worse flaws in that they're, you know, uh, they respond to certain ways of talking or speaking or certain facial features or certain, you know, other characteristics in ways that are just um, unfair and hurt certain groups more than others. And so, uh, you know, not just looking at the average performance of your system and how it's going, but also looking at all these different cross sections and making sure that you're actually, um, you know, not disenfranchising one group or others. Um, and then, you know, using people's data in an ethical way, right? Making sure that they're informed as to how their data is being used, giving them the ability to opt out. Um, I think, I really think we're going to see a, uh, potentially going to see a huge outcry of uh, privacy with respect to these models in, in a few years, just because of how dependent they are on, uh, in a sense, taking people's existing behaviors and sort of um, uh, learning from them in order to perform those behaviors. And we're already starting to see this with code and with, um, you know, uh, image models, but it'll just get more and more vital to talk about, to do it ethically. So those are a couple of um, things I would say, good ethics and safety practice for AI. In terms of your own research, what next are you interested in? So one thing I'm really interested in is uh, a lot of these models operate by a human telling them what to do. But for a lot of really complex things in the world, it's never quite that simple. You never quite know exactly what you want off the bat. 
And so I think modeling that process of as more of a back and forth as opposed to a one uh, one directional arrow could be a lot more interesting. So what if the model that you're working with could question your assumptions, could ask you, is this what you meant or is this what you meant, right? This might have this side effect. This is a sort of talk that you have with a person you're working with. It's competent who knows the broader picture and the broader context. And I think if machines could sort of start to ask good questions to elicit what it is that you really want, then that could maybe make them a lot safer and lead to fewer misunderstandings. That's one thing I'm, I think, pretty interested in. I'm also interested in understanding better how these models work outside of just language and vision. So it's a much broader context of science, engineering, medicine more broadly, and then maybe sort of starting to dig into these models a little bit and see whether we can understand what's going on inside of them uh, a lot better and see whether they start to understand similar model or capture similar concepts to, to, and maybe we can start to stitch that back together and gain some insights that we might not have even had before. Fantastic. Well, thanks for spending time with us and, and sharing your knowledge. We'll be following your, your research for sure. Absolutely. It was uh, so great to chat. Thank you for listening to Abrupt Future. You can find more content at abruptfuture.com and on our LinkedIn page.